Hello and welcome. It's Graham Norton here. Thank you for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast. Uh, coming up, the lovely Louise Redknapp gives us a love letter in new book, You've Got This. Nobel Prize winning author, yeah, you heard me, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro shares the story of artificial friends in Clara and the Sun. Catelyn Moran tells us how to get our book fix with Love My Read. And Monty Don gives us the ultimate green-fingered toolkit with The Complete Gardener. But first, here's Maria. I believe she's on the line now. Hello. You believe correctly, and I haven't just got out of bed. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've been up, done aerobics, taken the dog for a walk, written a novel. <laughs> oh, I'll ask Kazuo Ishiguro uh, to see what he thinks of it. He might like it. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll ping it over. It's only yeah. a page long. Oh, that'll be fine. Yeah, that's grand. Um, Maria, I, we haven't talked, so have you had your jab? No, and I am furious that you have got an appointment for yours. I mean, I'm older than you. I hate to but say that. But have you gone on the? You know, have you gone to the portal? Have you stepped through the NHS portal? Well, no, but I am actually going to because I called my. You see, the problem is down here. It's a little bit behind, Graham, and so waiting for the surgery. You know, it's a bit like waiting for, um, you know, Doctor Charlatan to come round on his horse and cart and administer some snake oil. You know, and then yes. and then you have Dr. to get Queen, the elders of the woman. village. <laughs> yeah, medicine woman. You have to get the elders of the village to decide what's wrong with you and you know make up a cure of herbs and spices. So I'm going to go on the website because the surgery have told me that it's in the next three weeks so it'll probably be equidistant when i go on the website i think you have to wait a couple of weeks oh no um, well i i just had to wait when oh, i yes. i went on because it was the thing on so i've been keeping an eye on the age on the website and so it was over 64 and then it was over 60 and then there was a thing last night in the news about vaccines and i just thought oh, i'll have a look and uh, i looked on the website and it was 56 and i was like in like flynn so i'm booked so now i'm happy to talk about it to tell other people to do it because now it'll <laughs> if i encourage people to do it it'll probably book out but um, i'm in that's all i care about i'm booked so when, in. Are, you, when are you going graham uh, uh monday week so a week and then i've got my second appointment end of may i'm done i'm yeah fireproof I'm definitely not waiting for the surgery. I'm on that website as soon as we stop speaking. In fact, I may do it while we're still no, speaking. No, it's so quick. Well, so long as you need your NHS number. Yep. Do you know that? that? Not off, off by heart, obviously, but it's somewhere around. Yes. I believe it's on Dolly's dog tag. I think that's where you put it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now you've said her name out loud and she barked. Oh, stop Dolly. Dolly. No, stop it, 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 stop it. Stop hey, it, Google. Stop it. I think also, no, stop it. Um, there's quite a lot of old people here, more old people than anywhere else in the land. Yes, you're a chick. You're a chick in the St. Leonard's. That's why I moved here, so I can mince about in disco gear. <laughs> Good. Well, that's pleasing to know, and I shall do that. Um, do you know what I'm doing today, Graham? Uh, you are painting a battleship uh, a light blue. <laughs> <laughs> Good that you know that it's no longer grey. Oh, yeah. But also light blue has moved on. No, what I'm going to do is <laughs> I tried to sell my car. I don't know if you remember my old Saab convertible 900. Oh, that was beautiful. Um, like an old shoe. It was lovely. Yes, like an old shoe with an old lady who lived in it. Silver grey. <laughs> and um, and um, I you know, had this chap who wanted to drive it around. And I said, yes, sure. And then, so he had it on his drive. 
He's got a sort of quite a big house. And uh, so he, and then his marriage broke up and he could not buy my car because obviously finances were hard. Oh, no. So um, it uh, has stayed on his drive. And I completely forgot about it because life is fast, Graham. Life moves very fast. With so much going on now. that was four years ago. Four of your earth years ago. So now it has gone to scrap. And the scrap merchant rang me up and said, look, um, I've got a big bag of ski wear and a big box of photo albums in the boot. Why were they? They were there. I don't know. And of course, none of which I have missed in any way, shape or form. I mean, Dr. Freud would say leaving um, my photograph albums was sort of leaving the past behind and probably never wanting to ski again because I have broken many bones. So I'm going to go and rediscover my past. It'll be quite mouldy, I'm thinking, because the rest of the car is. But so now that the sounds, car is that... going... What? That would be great because there's something about old photo albums because they're like an old shoe. Like those images are kind of burned into your brain and you don't know what's in the book, but you open it up and go, oh, I know that photograph so well. I know. It might be quite sad, don't you think? Uh, if everyone in them's dead, yeah. Yeah, that'll be sad. <laughs> yeah. I might look through them live tomorrow morning on the radio and sob quietly. <laughs> Do you know it's a year ago... Uh, today, that it was the beginning of, of our last normal week. I think I understand what you mean. Yeah, you know, before we went into lockdown. So kind of people were still minting about going to the pub, going out for drinks, hugging, la la la, all of those things. And then boom. I know, mad, isn't it? Oh, well, I yeah. think we're nearly at the end. Did I mention I've booked in for my jab? Shut up <laughs> now. Uh, do you have a letter, by the way? I have two letters, Graham. I mean, who knew? Virgin Radio. Dear Graham and Maria, I am writing to you with the sad old tale of being dumped. I'm lost and heartbroken, exclamation mark. We'd not been together long, meeting just before the pandemic. We put everything on hold until we could start dating properly in the summer, last summer, and it was lovely. With the new guidelines of support bubbles, we started to build something really special. The pandemic has been tough, with the loss of family members and my parents separating after 40 years of marriage. He was there through it all and has been such a support. However, just after Valentine's Day, he dumped me out of the blue. He said he didn't feel the same anymore and wanted to end it. When I asked how long he had felt this way, he said three weeks. In my mind, this is no time and he has thrown something away, something he claimed to have been committed to. This has made me rather cross and confused. I don't know what to do. I'm 31 and most of my friends are unmarried and starting families. My normal support network of parents has changed. Do I move on or do I try and talk to him more about this decision and maybe change his mind? And that is from Ellen in the Midlands. Um, I'm Ellen in the Midlands. I'm so sorry. You know, that pain of being dumped, it's just awful to be heartbroken and then to feel a fall. And then, of course, what you're doing is saying three weeks before he told me what happened that in, what happened that day? What was the thing that and then you go over every minute detail. And of course, because we're in lockdown, you have more time. So stop doing that. Stop doing that. Put the heartbreak in a balloon and let it go. But soon, Soon we will be coming out of lockdown as it was, Ellen in the Midlands, and you will be able to dance and be free and go and meet other lovely people. I think it's a little bit mean of him to do that, but I'm guessing from your letter that there was a lot of 
There was a lot of stuff for him to deal with during this relationship. As you say, your parents split up, loss of family members. And that can be hard in the early days for anyone to feel that they are being leaned on too much. I'm not accusing you of that, Ellen in the Midlands, but that is a possibility. Whether or not you should talk to him about it, I would say no. Keep your pride and keep your self-respect. You are worth more than him. He wasn't the right one and the world will open up and there will be another man. Do your little grieving for a, a little while and move on. Graham, what do you think? I mean, I agree with you. Um, poor old Ellen. Being dumped is just the worst and there's no good way to be dumped. It's just horrible. You didn't want it to end. He did. You're upset. And that's it. That You know, you can talk to him all you want. Certainly, you mustn't try to change his mind because that's it's done. If he's changing his mind, he'll come to you with that. But if you want, if you, you could, I feel like you could reach out to him and say, look, I'm really struggling with the end of this relationship. It's why I'm finding it much harder than I thought I was going to. Um, do you mind if we talk? Because I think, Ellen, oddly, I think he's a nice guy. Because I, I think what you had together in your sort of summer of love was genuine. I then think something may have changed, but yeah, like I think he said that three weeks thing just to say something because actually who knows when the shine went off it, but he couldn't, I think he felt like he couldn't leave. I'm reading between the lines here that, you know, because if you're constantly going through kind of traumas, if there's bereavements, if there's a divorce, all those things, I felt like, I feel like he couldn't, he didn't want to abandon you in those moments. I mean, he even hung around for Valentine's Day and, you know, so he, he thought, oh, I can't dump her before Valentine's Day. So, you know, he know, is a nice a guy. message, isn't it, Graham? That is such a mixed message. You, I would have thought, oh, God, I can't go through Valentine's Day with this kind of hanging over me. I must do something about it. But I think poor old Ellen in the Midlands has had an awful lot going on. So her feeling heartbroken is to do with both her parents, 40 years together. That's quite a kick in the teeth. And losing family members and being anxious in the pandemic. It's been a terrible time. And you've had other terrible things on top of that. So... It's magnified, I think, Ellen. All your pain is magnified by these things that have happened to you. But the sun will come out again. Yeah, and I think you've probably over-invested in this guy. You know, he was the one bright spot in a lot of darkness. And now he's gone away. And that little light being turned off makes everything else seem much darker. And But Maria's right. You know, the sun is about to come out. We, You know, things are improving for everybody. The world is getting brighter. And hopefully uh, that will happen for you too, Ellen. And you will get out there. You'll meet some more people. I mean, I must, you know, get on the apps now. You know, the just we are Set we are shallow up. yes exactly we are shallow creatures you know if if, if distract yourself with something else it's amazing you think i love that guy so much no one can replace him yeah just just try chatting to someone online. Seem, it yeah. seems that you can replace him. And also, Ellen in the Midlands, you are only 31. There's a whole life ahead of you. Yes, but I think being 31 makes these things harder in a way. Like, we're old lags. We've been around 
we've been around the block. We're dizzy. But uh, but poor old Ellen, you know, she's getting her heart broken and it, the wound is fresh. So yeah, uh, and I, if you if you hold yourself up against other people, like all her friends getting married and started families, yeah. you think, oh, no, I've got to catch up quickly, quickly, quickly. Don't do anything rash. That's all I would say. I'm sure uh, a lot of Virgin Radio listeners have been through similar things and will have good advice for Ellen in the Midlands. Maria and Cheltenham, this is harsh, Ellen, but really it's all you need to hear. Uh, he's just not that into you. And that is the thing. If somebody pushes you away, believe them and maybe go away. Uh, Christine from Newmarket, you need to move onwards and upwards. Don't waste any more time on this guy. Uh, Carolyn Cheshire, end of relationship. Just move on. It's not worth bothering with him. I mean, it's very easy to say these things. Very hard to do them, you know, particularly because there's so little else going on in our lives. There's so little stimulus. I, I imagine Ellen, every time she sits down for a moment, this guy's in her head. She's thinking about him. And it, that's, oh, it's awful. So hard. And I, I do think, I've said this before on the show, but yeah, I think you have to make an effort. You have to do a, a kind of mental exercise that every time he pops into your head, make sure you start thinking about something else. Don't indulge those thoughts. Train yourself out of it. Uh, please don't make contact with him. You will totally regret that. It's normal to just to dissect these things, but you will never fully know the truth, so it is pointless. Get back out there, Ellen. He was clearly not your soulmate. That's from Victoria in Stratford-Haven. And that's all you need to know, really. He wasn't the one. There may be a one. There'll be maybe more than one. But he's not that. Karen in Macclesfield. Stop. Never chase a man. Oh, Karen. Uh, you can't change somebody's feelings. If anything, you will just make him annoyed. Move on. Well, well, I mean, it would be quite annoying if she keeps kind of badgering him. But I think maybe one more discussion just for closure or something, you know, in the cold light of day. And also he may feel braver this time around and tell her the truth that actually he fell out of love with her quite a long time ago. or was never in love with her. Hey, Penny and Nottingham, I really feel for you, but this too shall pass. I was in the exact same position at 30, dumped by a lovely guy and feeling panicked about being left behind. Within six months, I met an even more lovely guy, had a whirlwind marriage and eventually two kids. That's petting in Nottingham. Ellen, you're in the Midlands. It could happen to you. Yeah. Uh, Jay and Croydon. Take three weeks with a pinch of salt. Try not to contact him. Give him space to reevaluate it. If he changes his mind, you'll be the first to hear about it. And isn't that the truth? You know, if he wants to get back together with you, he won't need you to change his mind. He'll contact you. But Ellen, I mean, it's harsh, but he's probably not going to do that. So you need to just train yourself out of this, you know, pamper your broken heart and just get on some apps and see what else is out there. Graham's Guide. All right, do you have another letter? I do, Graham. Here it is. <clears throat> Dear Graham and Maria, ever since I've known my husband, he's always shown obsessive tendencies, but I've learned to live with it. Since lockdown, it's really ramped up and I now have to hunt for things on a daily basis as he is constantly reordering every room. I've tried to arrange online therapy, but he refuses, saying it's not that big of a problem. Friends and family just think it's funny, but it's starting to take a toll on my mental health too. What can I do? And that is from Chris in Aberdeen. Oh, Chris in Aberdeen, I do feel your pain. I have several friends who are in the same situation. And 
I think the anxiety of the last year has kind of, if you have any of those tendencies, it's kind of ramped up that OCD. And, um, you know, it's made anxious fools of us all. So I would say to your partner, Chris, in Aberdeen, that could he do it? Could he, she, yes, do it for you rather than for him? Because it's, you know, say it is actually affecting me. I know everybody thinks it's funny and you say it hasn't really got that much worse, but I'm here to tell you that it has. And where is the remote? And so, you know, just ask him nicely if he'll just think about how it's impacting on you as well. It's horrible for anybody undergoing this. It really is not pleasant to either be suffering from OCD and having to do all the things. It's not just washing your hands, as people think. There are many, many elements to OCD that can be challenging. Uh, so I just think you need to just sit down, Chris and Aberdeen, and have a good long chat and explain quite how it's impacting on you and for him or uh, to sit down to uh, a therapy session on zoom it's not a great big ask and there'll be lots of different ways for him to deal with it and it will be helpful for you so i i believe that is the way forward if it really is impacting on your mental health then he needs to know that graham well i think chris you know we get it uh, in a world that's spiraling out of control, your husband is trying to exert control on what he can. And so he's becoming obsessed by things in the house. But what I, I think this is, what it comes down to, is respect. If your husband lived alone, he's right. This isn't a problem. If he lived alone and he wants to rearrange every room and, you know put the spices where the socks used to be, then uh, fine, do that. But he doesn't live alone. He lives with Chris. And so out of respect for his husband, the man he's supposed to love, you'd think he'd want to fix this. And I think that's... I, so I think basically that's what Chris needs to say. Look, fine for you. This may not be your problem, but your problem has now become my problem. Um, so it's... if. If you love me, if you not even love you, if you respect me, if you're at all interested in us living together for the future, then you need to do something about this. And I don't think that's unreasonable. And as you say, you know, a few sessions on Zoom, even if it doesn't, I guess, even if it doesn't help, at least he's shown willing. I think that's yeah. the most damning thing is that he's and not even willing to help. try. I think it will help. There are lots of different things you can do, cognitive behavioural therapy, to try and lessen the effects and the, to lessen the effects on you. I mean, if you think about Chris in, in Aberdeen, if you think about what's going on in his head all the time to be reordering everything, it's not a nice place to be. And he's downplaying it all uh, Gary because Burm, he doesn't want sending to really love and support address you both. this thing. Sounds very tricky for the two of you. Reordering you have to let him know how you feel and that you just want to help him, the, but it's know, also affecting and you the in the house. But you really have to just It's be not really cool that your family and friends say, are laughing this is at affecting this. Me it might be making your partner worse if they feel they can't. If they feel they can't chat to them. Gently nudge them into understanding how serious an issue it is for the both of you quite hard so you yeah, can I think help that, him you know it, I mean the problem family, is he I needs to help himself he needs to do the living thing. with it and, you know it's just you know get it. a friend's foible. family they're it's not there so it's but hilarious living that with it, that's incredibly hard this, and, you know, so I think no that's, he's just got to acknowledge that he 
he's not in this by yes. himself. That's why I get he's in it with laughing, someone he but married. Really, he's got you're to, supposed to be a do team. something about this. And so uh, Harry you know, in, in South teamwork, London, he uh, needs to up his Maria game and Graham Wright. You need to let him know how you feel. Don't like say and also Christian Aberdeen. It's a lot more common than you think. Home, Harry in South London. Maria in Cheltenham. I think it's the only way he can exert control. And so go easy. Maybe talk about areas in the house that he can focus on. If that would make themselves better. In and I think a lot of meantime, times, I mean, there might be ways to distract know. him, but like this is, but, you know, crazy. why not? I, I why just think, am I doing this? Uh, why but not? Cannot do, stop try to help himself. Why not do a Zoom course? And I think someone was uh, on Twitter was saying there's a Aberdeen a mental health charity. I think you can go online. Uh, you know, there are people out there to help. It doesn't have to cost lots of money. There are volunteers, and there are there is help available for you. Uh, my daughter constantly washes her hands and has so much more and has so much more in lockdown. I think you need to put yourselves in a day of their life to fully understand the impact on their lives. Be sympathetic, please. And that's from Anonymous. And I think he is being sympathetic, um, but equally, you don't want it to spiral out of control and, and affect his mental health. So it's a, a bit of both. And uh, finally, I think you should talk to family and friends and ask them not to trivialise the situation. Might sound harsh, but these feelings and actions are real and a way to control deep-seated emotions and issues. Balance pushing your partner to seek support, but supporting him by not belittling and criticising as well. That is some very good balanced advice. The Graham Norton Radio Show. Virgin Radio. Pop star, dancer, actor and now author you've got this and other things i wish i'd known is written by louise redknapp and she is on the line now hi louise hi graham how are you i'm very well i think the last time i saw you was at a showbiz bash <laughs> most probably yeah. yes must have been a while ago now though <laughs> yeah i think it was the opening uh, opening night of nine to five. Oh, of course yeah which was a, a fab night yeah, it was amazing. Did you get to meet the great woman herself? Do you know, I didn't because the days that she was there, I wasn't there. I didn't open the show. I, I ended up going into it um, a few months after. So unfortunately not. But um, I know everyone said she was pretty amazing. Oh, hey, listen, we might get to that and uh, talk more about that in a bit. But let's let's talk about the book. You've got this. Other things I wish I'd known. Uh, I guess with these sorts of books, I, I always feel like you want to ask someone... Why now? And how did you get to the point where you felt confident enough and strong enough to tell this story? Um, do you know, it, it, for me, it was such a, a roundabout way, because first of all, it isn't an autobiography. It's not a big tell or it's nothing like that. Um, the book really much very much draws on experiences of mine from start to end, not just of the last few years. Um, and somebody asked that the publishers asked if I'd be interested in doing a book straight away. I was like, absolutely not a big expose type of book. But um, I, I really love books and I love reading and I love books that I always can open up maybe on a more, you know, a morning when I'm not feeling great. And there's something there that just gives me a little bit of a lift that day. Um, and I did say that's something that I would love to do, something that I enjoy reading myself. Um, and it just kind of worked out. They said, look, have a play around, have a think of how you want to do this. So um, after sort of writing a few things down, we sort of worked it that it could be, I talk a little bit about my experience, whether it be from being in eternal to 
current day and then the second part is very much what I learned what I wish I'd bottled from being a child what I wish I'd done differently um in hope that not only did it help me <laughs> writing it all down but um maybe it will will help other people a little bit as well it was a really nice experience in the end I was, I was really concerned about it being um something that people would read into too much but hopefully we managed to get it right and I, I can imagine that, that writing it for you was kind of therapeutic and, and that was great. And I, hopefully for people reading it, they'll take real encouragement and inspiration for how, you know, the, the lessons you've learned. But because, I mean, it's not a dishy book. It's not kind of, you know, a, a salacious book in any way. But you do kind of bear all about yourself. It's very exposing of you and, and some yes. of the darker <laughs> times in your life. Is it a hard book to talk about? Do you find it difficult doing things like this? Do you know, over the last week, I've done sort of different things on TV, radio, and I've been doing this for 28 years. And of course, when I'm talking about music or a new theatre show or something, I get nervous. But this was the first time just before going live on anything where I really had butterflies and I, I was a bit sort of nervous to a different level to what I've ever been before. It wasn't like an excited nervous. And I think it's because... So many parts of the book get picked up and printed in out of sort of context to yeah. what it says in the book. You know, when you read the, the book as a whole, like you said, it's very much about things that I went through. This isn't about anybody else. This isn't blaming or placing blame. And when I was writing the book, I kept the more personal things in, to, in the beginning, just to get it all out. And then I thought, oh, these will come out. I'll definitely take these these points out it's not something I really wish for people to know about me and it was only the people maybe closest to me that said I actually think Lou that that this book works because of that honesty and if you're not going to be honest maybe don't bother doing it at all and um they had a point so at that stage I was so far in it I thought no don't you know get your big girl pants on and, and go with this don't don't back out now <laughs> No, and you are very respectful of everybody involved in the story. I mean, I'm a big pop fan, so I was like flicking through the pages going, where do we get to the end of Eternal? Where do we get to... And <laughs> the end of Eternal is just, things were said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Graham, it's so hard, isn't it, to... Especially, like, Eternal was so long ago, and of course things happened, and we were four girls in a band, believe Things were me, said, Louise, things, things were said. Were said. <laughs> I didn't want to write what was said, it would be a whole other book, but... Um, <laughs> You know, it's been so far on and I have such a huge amount of respect for the girls. I mean, I experienced things in life with them that you could only ever dream of. And the last thing, we, we were young, we were learning so much and ultimately the experience was amazing. Any issues and struggles I had come very much from my own mind and dealing with sort of different issues. But um, yeah, I, I'm not one to sort of go in and be unkind about anybody. That That's the one thing I talk about in the book a lot is kindness. So I wouldn't have really been uh, following my own advice if I had gone in on everyone. <laughs> and, you know, I think people... People imagine when they see Louise Redknapp, we see you kind of, you know, dancing on a show in front of millions of people or being a pop star or being on stage. The, you know, the confidence oozes out of you. And then, you know, in the book we discover that's not real. I mean, you were sort of plagued by sort of self-doubt. Oh, massively low self-esteem issues. And it's strange, actually, in, in recent years, music... Um, 
and, and sort of coming back into the music industry and being on stage is what gives me my confidence. So I think for so many years, and I talk about it a lot, a lot in the book, where my confidence was low, I think so much of it came from not doing the one thing that gave me confidence. I sort of gave all of that up. And that's the one thing that I think was what I was sure about and I don't think that was because I thought I was amazing at it I just loved it when you love something and you get the opportunity to do it it's um it's a great feeling which therefore makes your self-esteem feel great so yeah I um I did go through some rough patches and and kind of some things that I know people most probably wouldn't want to talk about but I think what you see isn't always what you get and I think that goes for everybody in life no matter who you are what you have you know, we can't believe everything we see or read, and especially on social media. I think it's sometimes it takes for people to come out and say, don't be fooled by by whatever you see. A lot of us are in the same boat. And Louise, it's interesting you were talking there about uh, how getting back on stage and back to performing gave you your confidence, gave you your, your self-esteem. Because I think it's interesting in the book, you know, you and, and Jamie, you struggled so much to become parents. You tried so hard. And how hard was it to admit that actually being a mom wasn't enough for you? Yeah, I mean, that's always something that, especially as a, a woman, you, you never want to admit because it's something that you worry you can be you can be frowned upon and also we live in such a judgmental world where you have to I feel that I have to take every word out of my mouth and look at it without (laughs) sort of offending everybody or saying something I shouldn't um but yeah I I did it wasn't enough for me and and believe you me my children are my world and I adore them and I admire any woman who or dad that loves being at home with their family constantly but from a really young age, I went to stage school from the age of 11. It was what I loved to do. And I got given the opportunity to do it, which was even more lucky. And then sort of stopped. And for, for a short while, it was great. I loved sort of having the normality of knowing what my day bought. But as I got older, as the kids got older, as Jamie got busier, I, I started to feel really left behind. And and sort of, you know, my, my mind just ran away with me. And, and I think I speak a lot in the book about feeling lonely. And that was nobody's fault. It was just how my life sort of turned out. Yeah, there is a real kind of, oh, to say gilded cage is kind of probably too dramatic. But th- there is that sense that, you know, it, it all looked so picture perfect. Yeah, and it, part of it was, I was very lucky. I, again, I speak really a lot in the book about by no means people reading this book or listening to me I I don't think I was hard done by or you know I I just I just struggled a little bit with with the sort of not doing anything um, especially as the kids got older it it was just not the way I wanted my life to be and it it wasn't what made me happy and, and that's not being ungrateful for anything I had and I know I've seen you know I grow up and grew up in a one parent family where my mom had nothing so um, none of it was expected. I, I was grateful for everything. I just, I like to be my own person. And I, I've always had been as a, as a young girl, even when I met Jamie, I was very much my own person, had my own career. And somewhere along those lines, I felt like I just become a bit nothingy. Um, and that sort of, you know, embedded itself quite badly in my mind. Yeah. What did your other, you know, friends think of the book? Because did they, I feel like they didn't know a lot of what you'd gone through. They weren't privy to it. And now they're reading in a book and they must feel like, oh, what, why didn't you come to us? 
Yeah, I think so. I think I'm a little bit old school when it comes to just um, keeping <laughs> keeping things pretty in. And again, it was kind of hard to moan about my life because my life was lovely. People would look on and go, she has lovely holidays, she has a lovely home, what on earth is she moaning about? Um, but my mum was with me a lot of the time and my mum spent a lot of those nights maybe with me where I, I was at home on my own and she would be the person that I'd ring early in the morning um, and talk to honestly and openly about how I was feeling. So, um, yeah, I, I think my mum's most probably the only person that I really massively turn to. I think one of the things in the book that you really nail is that idea of being the divorced woman and how <laughs> yeah. society treats that woman. And they sort of see you as, I don't know, a victim or sad or something. I, I must read every day how regretful I am. Um, and it can be upsetting because every, when I used the word regretful in an interview, I was regretful of of how I did it, how I didn't take my time, how I just, you know, it was almost like I was this very quiet, well-behaved person for 20 years. And then I just went crazy for a year and it just all went wrong. Um, so I was regretful of that behaviour. I wish that I had have just slowed down a little bit and, and really looked at, at what was wrong rather than just kind of running, which I've said in interviews. But I, it is hard because people kind of want me to move on. But I feel that people or the press will only be happy maybe when I've met somebody and I'm with somebody and it'll be like, OK, she can be happy now. But I'd like to portray that I think I could be happy with or without a partner. <laughs> I think that's my aim here. It shouldn't just be about having to to be with an, a new boyfriend or putting it out there that I just kind of want to be happy and, and work hard, be with my kids. And if that happens, fabulous. But if it doesn't, I can still be happy <laughs> and not sad. So guys, I'm not sad. I'm okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I, absolutely. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. But it is interesting how people didn't quite know how to behave around you after the divorce. They were like, well, who is Louise Redknapp now? Because they were kind of yeah. this, this super couple. And now, now is who is this woman? Yeah, absolutely. And and you never know what someone is going through at home and you never can know their life unless you're walking in their shoes. And obviously our life was pretty private. Um, but I did feel for, for some time and, and even now still, I still feel that if there's something nasty to say, it's more likely to be nasty towards me than anybody else. Um, which I've, again, I've had to learn. I talk a lot about it in the book. And it, it was really damaging to read such nasty things, especially when your kids are involved. And sometimes you want to just scream as loud as you can, as much, tell everybody as much as you can, but you kind of know that's not going to work either. So I just try to hold my head up. And, and I hope in time, you know, the love I have for what I do, wanting to get back into the theatre when they open, the music that I love doing. I, I just got to plough forward and hopefully people can see that I'm me on my own and I'm OK with that. You've got this. Another things I wish I'd known is out now in hardback and audiobook. Louise Redknapp, thank you so much. Take care uh, now. Thanks, Graham. See you All soon. Right. Bye. Lots of love. Bye. 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 The Graham Norton Radio Show. Virgin Radio. He's a knight of the realm. He's won a Booker Prize, a Nobel Prize for Literature. And he now brings us his eighth novel, Clara and the Sun. Kazuo Ishiguro should be on the line now. Hello. Hello, Graham. How are you? I'm very well. Now, I don't want the listeners to think I'm being over-familiar, but you prefer to be called Ish in interviews. Is that right? 
Uh, yeah, because no one can pre pronounce the word Kazuo or the name Kazuo, and I'm uh, one of including them. me. So, <laughs> so, so that, that's Jewish. I tried to find out how to say it. So I was watching interviews, and like no one says it the same. Every interview <laughs> was saying it differently. So I thought, oh well, uh, it, yeah, all bets are off. Um, congratulations on the book, sir. I really, really enjoyed it. It's it's a wonderful book. How much? Uh, do you tell people about it? Obviously, Clara's an artificial friend. She's adopted by Josie. But uh, what do you reveal of the of the plot in chats like this? I'm I'm quite open to revealing all kinds of things. I mean, I I, I don't have this big thing about you know keeping things hidden. But um, I I don't know. Maybe my publishers prefer me not to say too much. Um, but basically, yeah. I mean, you know, as, as a a quick introduction, yes. It, uh, it's about it's about this little robot girl. Who, who's a very sophisticated AI girl in a world where you know they're as ubiquitous as say vacuum cleaners or bicycles you know um, and uh, she's an artificial friend and she's designed to prevent teenagers from becoming lonely and it, and the book starts with her in a shop staring out at the street outside trying to learn as much about the human world as possible and of course she sees everything through the lens of loneliness initially you know, because that's what she's for and you know, reading the book, it's it's beautiful, um, and there's very tender moments, but they're very dark moments. And it seemed sort of unlikely that this began life as a children's book. Well, it didn't quite. I mean, uh, somewhere the seeds were. It was a little, um, a tiny little story which I had. Not 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 like a for a YA book, but for you know one of those books that you read your children when they're going to bed. I mean, you know, for five six year olds, you know, with these illustrations and uh, and a, a little text. And I, I could see these beautiful pictures of kind of sky and the sun, uh, and the sun is almost like a person. Um, uh, and I I had this beautiful little what I thought was a poignant little story that you know five year olds and six year olds would love. And I ran it past my daughter my grown-up daughter, who was working in a bookstore at the time, Naomi Ishiguro, who's a, who's a novelist. Uh, and, she, and she was an ex... Yeah, I thought she was quite expert on young children's books. And she, she just stared you know, coldly at me as I came out with this touching story. And then she said, um, you know, you're not going anywhere near young children with that story. You know what I mean? That, that's just wrong. <laughs> uh, last uh, night, when I finished the book, I, I mean, I did think, I can't imagine closing that picture book and going, night, night. <laughs> well, no, obviously it got, it got a bit more adult. But, well, once, I, once I was prohibited from um, <laughs> pursuing this project, uh, the initial project, I thought, okay, uh, this can be my next adult novel. And then, then I brought all this stuff in about um, AI and gene editing. I mean, originally Clara was, was maybe like a doll or like a teddy bear or something like that, you know. Uh, that was the idea, but when it was a small children's story. But um, no, that often happens to me. I have, I have a story that's meant for one thing and then it turns into something else completely different and, and it usually gets sad and dark, I suppose. And Clara, she's a very sweet, naive character, but she observes in an almost sort of forensic way the way that people move, the, the groups they stand in, the speed they're walking at. Is, is that how you see the world? Do you watch situations in a similar way? Um, no, no, no. I'm, I, I, was trying, <laughs> I was trying to simulate how maybe, you know, like a, a, a newly created robot would, would look at the world. Um, uh, I, I, I probably got a little bit more 
kind of nuanced um, <laughs> over the years. But but yeah, she at the beginning she's brand new, and all she can see is what she can see out of this shop window, uh, and she's got to learn everything about the human world she'll soon enter through through that shop window. Um, and so she often comes to uh, she, she's very observant, and she she's superbly intelligent in some ways. But you know, like like children, like very young children, she she sometimes you know, gets two and two and, and makes eight or something like that. She comes she comes to very bizarre conclusions about the world and what one of them is that because she's solar powered she thinks the sun is a source of all nourishment and goodness not just for her and her fellow you know artificial beings in the shop but for everybody or the humans out there in the street uh, because it looks a bit like that you know um, and she holds on to this belief um, she never loses this kind of childlike belief in the goodness of of the sun or at least in the presence of some powerful goodness that's watching over her and will help her uh, so she, she's a, she becomes a strange mix of super sophisticated uh, and incredibly naive and also sort of faith i mean it's it, that it's beautiful how much she believes in the sun yeah i i i wrote this novel called never let me go um about 15 16 years ago and i reread it several years ago and i thought I thought, wow, this is a really bleak book. I mean, you know, the, the guy who wrote this really needs to cheer up a little bit. <laughs> and in a, in a sense, you know, this this latest book is almost like an emotional response to that. It's almost like a reply. You know, uh, um, it, it's on similar territory in in a way, but but this one I think contains more hope, and as you say, uh, perhaps a little bit more faith in not in any kind of god, but in the maybe the you know the decency of uh, human beings. And it's interesting, why is there any reason, any particular reason why this book is set in uh, a city in America, whereas Never Let Me Go was in Britain? Well, I, oddly enough, I mean, I actually had a debate with my wife quite late on when the book was more or less finished, whether, whether to, you know, re, uh, just you know, bring the whole thing over and set it, set it in Regent Street or something, and then in the Norfolk countryside or something like that. And, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been that difficult to do. But I felt there was something appropriate about America because America is a much younger society, and I think a more fragile society, as maybe we've 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 seen uh, recently. And this is the backdrop to Clara and the Sun is is a is a world that's kind of turning dystopian. It hasn't quite become dystopian, but it's a world where things like artificial intelligence and gene editing have become every day. And the society hasn't quite figured out how to reorganize itself to meet, meet these challenges. And I thought there, there was something appropriate about setting it in America, not, not only because that, that's where a lot of the breakthroughs are most apparent, but because America seems to be a, a fragile society that, that is in flux and is often at a crossroads, and um, um, maybe I'm kidding myself, but you know, I think older societies like ours. I mean, we, we have more rigid systems, um, and also I, I had all these American images, you know, from kind of like American paintings, and um, you know, of, of big skies, and um, with, with kind of like a grain silo on the horizon, and fields, and and sleek. Skyscrapers and the sun coming down in shafts between. I mean, I had these kind of Edward Hopper kind of images in my head, and um, as well as those ones from the you know, young children's books, you know. And I, I wanted to put that kind of atmosphere in, into the book. Ish, when I see you doing little Zoom interviews and things on on screen, there's a piano and a guitar behind you. Are they, do they belong to you? 
Uh, yeah, there's 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 about eight guitars in this house, and uh, it, I thought it was about the only kind of uh, angle I could have my camera where there wasn't the guitar in the picture. <laughs> but obviously, the, the one has sneaked in. Sorry, I can't I can't do anything about the piano. It's too hard to move out of the out of the shot. So, what sort of music do you play? Do you play blues or? Uh, well, well, you know, as I told you, I grew up in one of the heartlands of the blues in Guildford, Surrey. So, I mean, it's in my blood. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, uh, when, when I was young, I, I wanted to be a singer-songwriter. And, um, you know, I wrote over 100 songs um, before... This- with uh, Stacey Kent, was it Stacey Kent? I know you did no, a lot. No, no, no. That's what I do now. I write the lyrics for Stacey Kent, the ah, right. jazz singer. Yeah, that, so so I'm doing that. You know, I've been doing that for about the last twelve years, and we're we're working on new songs right now. But I don't write the music for that. I just, I'm, I'm confined just to my kind of literary department. Um, the music is written by Jim Tomlinson, the saxophonist um, and band leader. But um, now, when I was young, I, 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 I just I tried to do the whole thing. I thought I could, you know, sing and write, play the guitar and play in front of audiences and, uh, um, and write songs. And, and that kind of became the apprenticeship uh, for my writing fiction. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm a terrible singer and uh, I wasn't a very good songwriter, but uh, uh, I learned a lot about writing, well, uh, you know, what became my, uh, the kind of writing I, 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 I do now, you know. Um, I went through a kind of apprenticeship stages, the kind of the autobiographical, aching autobiographical phase and the kind of the purple prose phase and, you know, wild experimental phases that I see people going through when they're writing stories. I went through that in writing songs. And uh, um, I think there's there's still a lot of um, what I do, the way I work as a writer, has got a lot in common with the way um, songwriters work, you know. And now I've talked to a, a lot of writers who've had, you know, so, you know, they're writing away, they're publishing novels, they're doing well, and suddenly a novel goes gangbusters and it's just huge and they feel the pressure of that in terms of a follow-up and stuff. Having won the Nobel Prize for Literature, how hard was it to actually get back to, I don't know how you write, but say a laptop, how hard was it to get back to work with, with, with I mean, it's an honour, but is it a burden? I probably, I have to find that out yet because uh, Clara and the Sun was was about one third written uh, when this news suddenly you know, just came out of a clear blue sky. Wham, you know, I mean, uh, it, there's no lead up to it. You know, there's no kind of short list or anything like that. <laughs> no this. nominees. No, 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 no. I mean, you know, you're having your breakfast at 10.30, you know, unwashed hair, you know, thinking of what you're going to do that day. By 11 o'clock, you're a Nobel Prize winner. And, and there are all these te- television crews outside your door. I mean, it really is weird. But the, um, but I d- I've yet to discover what that's going to do to my writing. And probably not that much, actually. Um, uh, you know, w- when I won the Booker Prize, when I was still only 34 years old, that, that was a bit more like that. You know, um, that that kind of, it, it kind of catapulted me into a sort of different space. But these days, I kind of feel, yeah, you know, I'm 66 years old. I kind of feel, Graham, that, you know, the place where I do that kind of stuff, where I get prizes and, and you know, do acceptance speeches and all that, it, it's fantastic, but it's a, kind of like a parallel universe. And the person that does that is... It's like a parallel person, like an avatar or something. And, <laughs> what, what, you know, in my study, it's my study is still as messy as it was before. You know, it's it's, it's small, it's cluttered. You know, papers all over the place, and the problems I've got about how you know what how to write the next chapter. I mean, exactly the same. You know, 
I, I kind of thought when I came back from Stockholm with the Nobel Prize, someone would have made my study much grander. <laughs> <laughs> but it, no, it was it was it was still there, you know, in this kind of terrible state, you know, uh, unhoovered, you know, uh, and and that's kind of how it how it is inside my head as well. Well, listen, congratulations on the amazing response to Clara and the Sun. I really enjoyed it. Kazuo Ishiguro, um, we've run out of time, so I must say uh, goodbye, and what an honour to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Well, it's great to talk to you, Graham, and good luck. Thank you. All right, bye-ish. Bye-bye. Coming up soon, Monty Don will be sharing his gardening top tips in the updated version of The Complete Gardener. But first, here is the fabulous... Catelyn Moran. Hello, Catelyn. Hello, my darling. Now, I begin with an apology because we've hung out. I mean, we've had a dinner, you know, things. And I, I, I've been saying your name wrong my entire life. Oh, well, me too. You have to understand it. <laughs> Everybody else who spells their name that way, they would pronounce it Caitlin. I picked it out of a Jilly Cooper book when I was 13 and I just thought it was pronounced Caitlin. So I've literally made it up and it's caused trouble ever since. So I am so sorry. But, but you must be, are you one of those really nice people? You don't correct people. No, I don't say anything at all. No. <laughs> I, I say thank you very much for noticing. Because I've interviewed you before and I'm sure I called you Caitlin throughout. <laughs> So, I really wouldn't mind. I, it's abs- I'm just happy to be invited anywhere, Graham. It's not a problem. Catla <laughs> Moran, Catla Moran. Uh, I, I will never get it wrong again. Well, I probably will, but I'll, I'll at least I'll know I've got it wrong the next time. So, tell us about uh, Love My Read. So, LoveMyRead.com is a book subscription service. That much yes. I know. And you have got together with them for a special Mother's Day gift box of books. Is this correct? That is all correct. And I can speak more on this subject. So they get people to come and guest curate boxes. So they've previously had Frank Cottrell Boyce, who wrote 24 Hour Party People, Mallory Blackman, who wrote uh, Noughts and Crosses. They've got me to do March because it's Mother's Day. And they were like, let's do a list of books that are all about mothers and daughters so that mothers out there, instead of getting flowers or chocolates on their birth on, their, on Mother's Day, that their children could buy them books instead, which is a better gift. And uh, I've very carefully chosen six books that have nothing to do with being a mother because the last... <laughs> Last thing you want to read about on Mother's Day when you're a mother is any more mothering. You've done your mothering. You want fun instead. So I've just gone for thrills, laughs, a little bit of feminist rage, and then back to the fun again. <laughs> and now tell me this. So when you buy this thing, do you just buy – can you get it as a one-off or do you have to sign yes. up for a year? Yep, you can do a month, you can do three months, you can do a year, whatever you want. They send you a box. It's got lots of extra goodies in it as well. They put treats in it and tea and chocolate and stuff. And uh, so, so it's a big prize. And I think the key thing is if you want to get it as a gift for someone, that's great because mums would like books rather than chocolates and flowers. But also if you want to get it for yourself, the last thing you want to do is make another choice. I find my life as a woman is just one long to-do list. And when the time comes to read a book, I don't want to have to go and research one. Just put one through my letterbox. Which is my, my my motto about everything. Just put something through my letterbox and let me enjoy it. <laughs> but also, isn't the I mean, that is the best way to find a book is to have someone recommend it to you. you well, know. that's the thing. And like, and if you've got people who are in the book industry, you know, I get sent all the books in advance, so you know, I know what things are coming up, and I can just be like, let me just send you the thing that everyone will be talking about in a couple of months' time, and pop it through your letterbox. But for this one, I've gone for classics. So we've got Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's Americana, which is just the best book about being an immigrant ever. Um, uh, an Invisible Woman by Caroline Corrado Perez, which is this book that explains why if you find your life is difficult as a woman, it's because most of the things in the world have been built for men. Like iPhones, you can't send a text with one hand 
if you're a woman, because they're built for the bigger hand of a man. The symptoms of heart attacks in women are completely different for men, so men, women tend to get misdiagnosed. And then I just put a load of laughs in there. We've got Bridget Jones's diary. You've got to have that. Nancy yes. Mitford, the producer, Pursuit of Love, and Nina Stibby's Love Nina, which is just one of she's the heiress to to Adrian Mole. She's such a funny writer. And that uh, invisible women idea. I, there was a documentary on I think Radio Four about all that kind of the, the kind of sexism that you don't notice. You know, yes. because you know computers and and phones and things are programmed by men so there's lots of yeah yeah. well the default body and the default lifestyle is still presumed to be men and particularly in stuff like tech like kind of you know it's it's an industry dominated by men and they just don't realize that women's bodies are different so stuff like seat belts for instance seat belts are positioned in cars for men not women so which is why for women the seat belt digs right into your bra area and uh, and in a crash you're just going to have terrible tit damage so like it's so it's she spent five years coming up with all this brilliant research and it's it's such a soothing book because often as a woman you think, is life really difficult and am I really tired and touchy because I am screwing stuff up? And this book goes, no, it's because everything you're using all the time is built for someone a bit bigger and slightly different from you. That's why you feel so very tired at the end of the day. And uh, now I notice you have, in a beautiful way, you haven't chosen one of your own books. <laughs> But but one of your books does show up <laughs> if you if you order yes. this box, <laughs> like it or not. <laughs> uh, which which one of your books is uh, is coming uh, unheralded? Yes, it's my latest book, More Than a Woman, and this is the update from uh, How to Be a Woman. So ten years ago, I write about being a younger woman and all the things that happen from sort of puberty to sort of your early thirties, sort of you know uh, bad love affairs and you know eating disorders and you know all the crazy things that happen in your younger years. This is about middle age. And the thing about being a middle-aged woman is you realise that your problems when you're younger, you have the luxury that they are your problems. They're things to do with your identity, you figuring yourself out. When you get to middle age, you realise that as someone who's parenting children, as someone who is looking after ageing parents, as someone whose friends are usually divorcing and need your help, that your problems are other people's problems. And you have become the fifth emergency service. And a middle-aged woman's job is to stand in the middle of society, holding together the threads with her bare hands for no pay at all, going, I am so tired. <laughs> I am the one that's keeping this show on the road and I am so tired now. <laughs> Stop having problems. Let's get back to uh, Love My Read. Because I think what's great about this, this idea is, you know, technology has tried so hard to kill the old technology of yieldy covers and pages. And it seems they can't. Books are bigger than ever. Well, it's it's the it was the first brilliant piece of technology. Like if you think of like the, the cataclysmic cultural big bang that happened once we invented the written word and people could write what they think, you know, and write their secrets and write facts and then you could pass it around to other people. You didn't need to personally travel from town to town and individually tell people stuff. You could put it in this book and make millions of them and spread them across the world and start these conversations. And also the the the, te- the format of the book is so beautiful. Like, you know, well, you know, if you have to, you'll, I'll read something on a Kindle or on my screen, but a book in your hand, yeah. it not only just sort of is like a little cultural indicator, like, look, this is what I'm into. I'm pretty cool showing my book off. But it's also when you look at it, when you open the first page of a book, it looks like a door and you're like, you're opening a door into another world. And when I'm in a library or when I see a bookshelf, it just looks like the spines just look like a series of doors we could just take off the shelf and just jump into another world and someone else's life. And we've never come up with anything that is as beautiful and sexy and pleasing and, you know, and, and pleasurable as a book. And also that thing of it, that involves, it, weirdly, although it's a very kind of isolating thing, you, you, you sit alone with a book, it does connect you to other people. I mean, there's the, the idea of you curating 
this uh, Love My Read uh, Mother's Day package, you know, we were talking about that idea of people recommending you a book, being in a bookshop and a person behind a counter going, ooh, if you bought that, you know what you'd love. Uh, That's such a special connection. Yeah, no, it's so beautiful just looking at someone and working out from how they talk for the first 30 seconds, this is the kind of thing you'd like. And that's because I think it's really misunderstood what reading is. We think of reading as a passive act. You just sit there and read someone else's words, but you're not. So when I write my books, if I'm if I write a dragon walked into the room, you would be imagining a different dragon when you read those words that I've written than someone else will. Your dragon might be, you know, black and shiny. Someone else is all red and friendly. And it's a creative act. You, the reader, are doing half the work. You're creating half the book in your head. And that's it's a collaborative act. It's not passive at all. All right, Catlin Moran, uh, I'm going to go all Desert Island. If you could pick one of these books, if only picking one, which, which one were you going to pick? Oh, you know what? For sheer joy, I think it's still Bridget Jones's diary. Like kind of it's still like that's that's the watermark for sort of for female characters. Everyone loves her so much. And if you've only seen the films, I hugely recommend that you read the books as well. It's like you get four times the amount of Bridget um, in those books. There's more detail to them. She's a cleverer girl in these books and uh, they're just an unending joy. Uh, well, uh, Callum Moran's Mother's Day box is available with a Love My Read membership and makes a perfect gift for a busy mom this Mother's Day. Uh, subscribers will be able to pick from six titles, complete with a beautiful package box, and that has a book, extra special treats and notes written by your good self, Catherine. There, I, I know, I'm telling you what those books are. <laughs> yeah, uh, lovemyread.com. Uh, Catherine Moran, thank you so much for talking to us and uh, I will say your name correctly from now for the rest of my life. <laughs> And you can say my name however you want. And can I just say, I'm on tour later this year. If people want to go to my website, Google me, Catelyn Moran. I'm on tour. Come and see me. Have fun. Thank you very much for talking to us. Bye, Catelyn Moran. Bye. Take care, darling. Bye-bye. 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 The Graham Norton Radio Show. Virgin Radio. It is nearly 20 years since The Complete Gardener was first published. It is now completely revised. Uh, it's beautiful. Brand new photographs completely rise and the author of that book Monty Don joins us now hello Monty Don hello how are you I'm very well thank you very much uh, this is uh, so in, in one way you kind of think all oh, well you know gardening gardening's gardening why would you need to revise the complete gardener um, but actually a lot has changed as particularly in organic gardening yeah, I mean, when I first wrote this book 20 years ago, organic gardening was still slightly a fringe activity and, and there was an element of trying to sort of validate it and, and uh, validate it. What did I just say? <laughs> I can't speak today. Um, <laughs> and to sort of push, it was an element of evangelical sort of preaching the word uh, because but you felt you had to put your voice out there. Now I think that's changed completely. I think most people instinctively, certainly people younger, um, want to do right by the environment and, and the planet, although they may not quite know what, what's involved. So one of the things I've done is is to clarify that and, and not feel that I have to persuade you to do it, but just help you go where you want to go anyway. But also, I mean, the world has changed. Climate change has become something that everybody, everywhere is having to deal with, and none more so than gardeners. Um, we're dealing with plastic waste. We're dealing with the peat problem. Uh, we've got pollution, as well as the fact that as a result of lockdown, certainly, um, more and more people are spending time in their gardens and realising that that is their doorway to the natural world. You know, this is this is... It doesn't have to be about the rainforest or the Himalayas or whatever. It can be about that little patch outside your back door that is yours. 
And it's it's interesting, you talk about how, you know, as recently as 20 years ago, uh, the gardening community sort of saw nature as their enemy. It was kind of the thing they were battling. Yeah, I mean, there's a a long history of that, which really stems from the Victorian period, when technology was increasing all the time. And certainly by the 20th century, gardeners, their skill and their expertise was measured as much by how they controlled and conquered nature as how they work with it. And and certainly when I started in the 1980s writing about gardening, that was very much the view that, you know, if you didn't know how to use chemicals properly and if you didn't know what to use to, to deal with certain fungi or whatever, then you weren't good at gardening. And, and I think that is just gone. That's gone now. Uh, one of the things, you know, gardening may have changed, but the other thing that's really changed is your garden, uh, Longmeadow. It must have mm. been a lovely sort of sense of achievement and pride for you to look at these pictures and kind of go, wow, look what I've achieved in the last 20 years. Well, I mean, you will know, Graham, actually one doesn't think like that because you're just doing it and that's what happens. Um, But certainly the changes, uh, you know, you look back and think, well, it has changed a lot. I mean, what has gone is the place where the children rode their bikes and left things lying around and and camped in the orchard and and that sort of thing. And it's become slightly more grown up. Um, And, you know, filming every week or at least 30 weeks a year in a garden means that 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 does dominate. But as a result, it has reached a maturity. And if you're a gardener and you love gardens, then yes, there is a sense, wow, gosh, look what's happened. And I've been here, you know, it, it's 30 years has gone by and and it's become a lot more grown up than I am. And has it surprised you or has it turned out the way you thought it would when you planted these things? Well, I think two things have happened. One, I planned it, I designed it, and it has come true to that design and plan. So to that extent, no, it hasn't. I mean, I, you know... I know what I'm about. If I, and, and so if I plant a hedge that is a foot tall and I want it to be 10 foot tall, I know that if I look after it a certain way and wait 10, 15 years, that will happen. But on the other hand, it has become a place. You know, it's become, it's taken on its own identity. It's not me saying, right, behave like this, perform like that. It's, it does its own thing, which is both better and different to what I'd imagined. And then there's the other fact that if you plant trees, as, as I did quite a lot, they grow, uh, first of all, they grow and you're delighted and then they get a certain size and you think, wow, look at that. And then they get too big. And I've got quite a few that are either shading out too much or blocking airflow, which we're now having to either cut back. And I had, hadn't thought about that at all. Well, you, yeah, I guess you, you've got, yes, it seems like an impossible dream that that tree would ever be yeah. that big. And oh, yeah. now, now look. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, the, the good news for that is, is people say, oh, there's no point in planting an oak because they grow so slowly or a beech or whatever it may be. Well, that's not true. I mean, I know if you're 25 and someone of my age says 25 years goes very quickly, you don't believe it because it just seems impossible. But it does. Time goes so fast. And also the pleasure of watching something grow is as that's that's the real joy. It's not the finished article. There never is a finished article. You never arrive with gardening. You know, gardening, everyone always says life's a journey. Well, actually, gardening isn't a journey. It's just what is there now. It's just you're here. And it's there and it will be different tomorrow. And and that's the pleasure. That is a lovely philosophy. That's a kind of a very Zen 
uh, way of, of looking at the world. Well, maybe that's what gardening does for you. Are you okay to answer some questions from listeners? If I can. Yes, well, yeah, no, seriously, no pressure because we didn't we didn't run these past you. So if you if, if it's kind of like oh, I don't know, we really we're not judging you, Monty. That's, don't worry, that's fine. Uh, okay. Dan in Derby. Hi, Monty. Uh, Dan in Derby is desperate to get started on the lawn. When am I able to? Is it scarify? Scarify? Scar- yes, it is scarify. Uh, and scarifying is when yeah. Scarify and seed, there's also a fair amount of moss. Any tips? Right. Scarifying is a good thing to do, and now is the time to do it. And what that means is you get a a wire rake if you are feeling vigorous, or you can hire a scarifier uh, if if it's a big area. And and what that does is pull out all the dead thatch, the dead, all the moss, all the material that hasn't grown over winter and is lying there, and it exposes uh, the soil which actually is, is good for the grass that remains, because grass is quite a robust plant. You're not going to damage it too much by doing that. But if there are any big bare patches, then you sow seed after you've done that. And now is fine. I mean, today where I am, it, it was minus three overnight, so, so nothing would grow. But as soon as it warms up a bit, which depending where you live could be any time now, sow grass seed, it will germinate quickly, and will establish within weeks. So now is exactly the time to do that. And am I needed? I quite like a mossy lawn. Is that I... well? I, I do too. I mean, this is one of the things I write about this in the book. Is that my grass is completely mossy and and hopeless as regards the the sort of green stripe degrade. But you know, each to their own. If if that's what makes you happy, then go for it. But personally, I don't worry too much as long as it's green and soft. Alison in Cornwall, uh, what would you recommend for bug protection of our tender young veg? Were due to plant out. Right, where to begin? Read the book because <laughs> good answer. Um, a, yeah. <laughs> a, um, I don't like the word bug because it, it it implies that they're a problem, and without insects, you're not going to have any any vegetables at all. You're not going to have any flowers. So we need all our insects, and they're all part of a complex web, and they don't. Your young veg do not need protecting from so-called bugs. They're not going to do any harm. Aphids will eat the soft, sappy growth, but they'll leave plenty behind. Yes, you'll have slugs and snails, and yes, you'll have caterpillars, but those can be managed very easily. It really isn't a problem. So the thing I'm saying is stop seeing nature as a problem, attacking and spoiling your efforts. Work with it. And look look at Longmeadow. We haven't used any kind of spray or or insecticide or anything like that for 25 years or more. And it looks all right. Wow, it looks amazing. Uh, Dave in Gloucester, uh, he's been trying to grow wild garlic from bought seed for several years. It, and he's shouting now, it never germinates. What am I doing wrong? I've tried indoors, outdoors, in a propagator, on a windowsill. Right, wild garlic, Allium mycinum, grows best from a bulb. It is a bulb. So growing it from seed is a very, very long-term thing to do. Buy bulbs. Um, what I would do is if you can find somebody who's got it, don't steal it from the wild, but if you find someone who grows it, then dig up a little clump, plant it uh, in the green, i.e. when it's still got leaves that are green, which will be any time over the next month or two, uh, and it will grow very well. The only word of caution I would say is be careful what you wish for, because if it is successful, it will completely take over wherever it's growing and outcompete anything else. What it likes is damp shade. So it's great, and I love to eat it and I like to look at it, but it does become rather invasive.
And very quickly, Laurel in Warrington wants to know where to start with filling a small empty border which could provide me with some interest throughout the year. Well, it, I mean, these are, it's a big question because obviously there's, there's a yeah. hundred possible right answers to that. But what I would say is that think of it as a structure. So you need maybe a shrub or two. You need a few herbaceous perennials, plants that will, will grow quite big and rapidly in summer, but die away completely in winter. And, and go by color. What I like to do is have a color scheme forever. So you either have hot colors or cool colors or pinks, whatever you like. You can, you know, it, there are no rules, but, but work out a color palette and also work out a time of year that matters most to you because and make that the peak and then work around it. So buy a shrub that will perform then and then a couple of herbaceous plants. And then you could buy some annuals or sow some seed. You could plant some bulbs in there. So gradually, you put together this, this jigsaw, or maybe a tapestry is a better analogy, um, that is limited. It's a small space. You've got limited colors. But it, everything there is something you like. And it's not going to happen overnight. Let it happen slowly. It'll take a year or two and try things out. If it doesn't work, pull them out and change it. Uh, Monty Don, I, could, I love listening to people who know what they're talking about. <laughs> I love listening to an expert. I could talk to you all day, but the clock is against us. So let's just remind everybody, The Complete Gardener by Monty Don, uh, a totally revised edition. It's a beautiful volume, is out now in hardback. I'll let you get back to your garden because I'm sure that's where you'd prefer it is, to be. It is, and uh, I, I will do that. But it's lovely to talk to you. <laughs> lovely to talk to you, Monty. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye, right. Thank you so much for joining me for the Graham Norton Radio Show podcast. I'm back on Virgin Radio from 9.30 on Saturday morning and the next episode of the podcast will be out first thing the following Monday. Chant to you then. The Graham Norton Radio Show. Virgin Radio.